Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thank you for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, we've got a full house uh, on our show today. A lot of people, a lot of voices we're going to hear from on the show. Before we get to all that, a uh, couple of quick notes. Um, you know, obviously, if you listen to us with some regularity, you know that um, although we've obviously always talked about politics, that's been the core of our mission for the seven years now that we've been on the air uh, clearly, we have spent an enormous amount of time talking about the coronavirus uh, in the weeks uh, past, over the last three months, basically, and then have turned our attention to the police uh, shootings in uh, Minneapolis, the Ahmad Arbery uh, shooting here in Georgia, and looked at what's happening out on the street. We're going to do that today with a group of reporters and editors who have been uh, covering uh, the news on the streets of Georgia. And uh, I want to make sure you know we're doing that today. But tomorrow, Monday, Tuesday, all of the early days of next week, we're going to return to that core political mission because, as you all know, Georgia's primary election is next Tuesday, June 9th. So the show tomorrow will focus on politics Monday, Tuesday, and, of course, on Wednesday, we'll talk about whatever outcomes we are aware of at that point. All right, that said, let's get right to our panel. I said we're going to talk to a group of reporters who've been covering this story ever since it started, essentially last Friday. Friday night was the first night of the big demonstrations, at least in Atlanta. Uh, to do that, first of all, I should say my partner on Thursday is Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Good to have another Thursday with you, Kevin. Uh, good to be here with you, Bill, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this show in part because I haven't had a chance to chat and see Ernie Suggs in a long time, and he's one of the fa my favorite people in our newsroom. Well, you you uh, uh, mentioned it, Ernie Suggs, who has been a reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, I think since like, like 1996 or 97, Ernie, where you've covered primarily race and culture, and you've been out in the street. So I have that year right, in like 1997? Yeah. I started here in 1997 when I was about seven years old, and I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're, but you grew up. You're a Brooklyn guy, aren't you? Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I like to tell people I, I was born in Brooklyn, but I went to high school in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, which is a small town in eastern North Carolina, and uh, went to college in Durham. And I've been in uh, Atlanta, as you said, since 1997, right after the Olympics. I, I, well, we're I glad. joined the staff. Well, we're very happy to have you on the show today. Uh, we're also welcoming uh, one of my colleagues, Ellen Eldridge, who uh, oversees all of our digital news gathering for GPB. You see her work at gpbnews.org every single day. She's been working. Uh, Ellen, you've been putting in long hours uh, gathering news and putting out news on our digital platforms about what's going on out there. How are you holding up? I'm doing well, Bill. Thank you for inviting me on the show today. The days all blur together. I'm, so. I'm glad to have you here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, boy, don't I know that. Um, we're also joined uh, by Jonathan Seri. Jonathan is uh, an Atlanta reporter in the uh, Atlanta Bureau of uh, Fox News. And when I say Jonathan, Atlanta reporter, I really mean you're covering the southern region. Your bag is always packed, and there's some part of the south that Fox News is sending you to. 
but you've been working here in Atlanta watching the protests in the streets for the last few days. How are you? Great to be with you, Bill. And also, we should tell everyone that you and I used to work together for many years at WSB back in the 90s. Chat. Oh, that's right. We're both Channel 2 alums. Um, <laughs> to get started, though, today, and, and all of you are going to be welcome to join in uh, with me. I am so pleased to welcome to our show uh, Chief Lewis Deckmar. If you were listening to our show yesterday, you heard me read a couple of paragraphs from an op-ed piece that the chief wrote for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution talking about the culture of policing today and how he's seen it reflected in uh, the uh, 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 death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, but beyond that as well. Um, Chief Deckmar has been the chief of police in LaGrange, Georgia, for some 25 years, but he has a 40-year career in law enforcement, everything from a street officer to a de detective. Uh, you've served in uh, Metro Atlanta uh, departments, uh, Morrow uh, as one of them chief, and you're the past president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police past president and chair of the Commission on Accreditation for Law Enforcement Agencies. Uh, you're a past president of the Georgia Association of Chiefs of Police. And I want to, Chief, uh, mention those credentials to establish how deeply ingrained you have been in leadership in law enforcement for many years of your career. So it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thanks for joining us, Chief. Uh, thank you, Bill, and uh, thank you and your panel for inviting me to join you this morning. So let's start with you. Um, and again, I want the rest of you to feel free to chime in with questions or comments. Uh, and, and here's part of what I read yesterday, but I think it's worth repeating today. Uh, Chief, you said, in my opinion, the death of George Floyd is not a police training issue, but is a result of a troubled culture. Um, he, you said the bystanders that called out for the police to stop uh, when George Floyd was ap apprehended, were not trained in police use of force, but they recognized wh what the police ignored, a fellow human being in pain, unsympathetically and unnecessarily being fatally injured. The action of the officer kneeling on Mr. Floyd's neck, the failure to interfere by, intervene by the three other officers present at the scene, and the press release of the incident, which grossly mischaracterized the nature of George Floyd's death, reflect a lack of core values that shouldn't be a concern to any police leader. Speak to that just a little bit more, Chief. Sure. Uh, oftentimes when you see uh, these sort of use of force issues, the first thing or the, the cry that you hear is there needs to be more training. And I certainly am a proponent of, of training, but these are these are basic values and principles that should guide a police officer in any action. Um, which, uh, I guess, if I was going to hijack, uh, uh, you know, another profession's oath, it would be the Hippocratic oath: first, do no harm; don't make things worse uh, uh, as a result of you showing up. Uh, oftentimes, and and I guess the point a point that I do want to make is that. The way the police uh, treated Mr. Floyd is not representative of uh, the vast majority of police officers that day in and day out interact with uh, citizens. Um, we conservatively make over 100 million contacts with the citizens a year. Of those 100 million contacts, we'll make 10 to 11 million arrests. So that means around 90% of the time we resolve an issue without an arrest. 
of those 11 million arrests, we'll have 50,000 officers assaulted, 10,000 will be assaulted feloniously. And of those assaults, those arrests, those millions of contacts, we use force in a way that results in someone's death about a thousand times a year. Uh, there was a Harvard study done um, uh, by an African-American professor um, who expected one result and found, in fact, another, which is 90% of the time, the facts around a fatal use of force are clear. Another 5%, um, they're murky. And then 5%, it shouldn't happen. But the problem is that 5% represents around 50, which is about once a week, which when showcased on the media creates this notion that the police universally are acting in a way inconsistent with what you would expect from your, uh, your police officers. Um, so the frustration for many of us is when we see these actions and we see the, the tepid manner in which uh, the agency has handled officers with a history. We see the lack of accountability. Um, we see the uh, finger pointing by the police chief's office uh, towards unions and the unions towards uh, uh, the police chief, and who's silently absent is the political leadership who ultimately is responsible for the union contracts, for allowing, instead of paying police officers, giving away uh, leadership prerogatives like accountability, like discipline. Um, so as a result, you end up uh, with agencies that uh, have officers that clearly shouldn't have been. And when there's a bad result, you look at the history and it's the predictable surprise. It was not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Chief, Kevin Riley here from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I've got, I've got a question that's deeply personal to me um, that I wanna ask. Um, but before I do that, I wanted to thank you for the op-ed. Um, in the past week, we've had you on our opinion pages Andrew Young and today Killer Mike. So we have really sought to hear from people who need to, I think, need to be hear from, heard from. And, um, and my question goes to something deeply personal to me. My father was a police officer for 30 years in Cleveland, Ohio, and your piece gets into the kind of person that ought to be sought for this profession. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know the the secret about policing, and uh, and and Hollywood, of course, uh, you see policing and it's driving fast and shooting people. Um, if uh, you look at the encounters that are uh, uh, the media focuses on, um, it's those incidents that are unique, and use of force is unique. Um, but what you really are as a police officer is a social worker with a gun, which is why. 90% of the time you're resolving issues without an arrest. And so during the selection process, you know, there's been quite a few studies looking at what are, what are those characteristics that make the best police officer. And what's clear is individuals that understand the nature of service before they get into policing, because that's what this is about. You're, you're gonna be intervening with homelessness, mental illness, domestic issues, juvenile delinquency issues, you're going to be, you're, every failure uh, that society has in terms of taking care of its uh, most vulnerable is going to end up in a patrol car um, because we're the only government agency that you can call for any reason 
and we come. And so the challenge that we have, and I think, you know, what limited success we have had in, in, in LaGrange, and, you know, it's a work in progress, is the recognition that collaboration and partnerships is what's key because we become the ombudsman. We get a call. We recognize what the issue is. We have those partnerships. We can hand this off. It's so significant. I took a police officer position three or four years ago, turned it into a caseworker position. So officers realize, man, this, this individual needs more than I can do. I've got calls holding. So uh, uh, they write the report and refer it to her, and she hooks them up with the 70-some nonprofits, faith-based community, other government organizations. So if you look at where law enforcement has come uh, since 1829, I think the next um, uh, significant uh, uh, evolution is going to be a recognition we have to act as that ombudsman, and we have to train our folks uh, to act in that capacity. Chief, uh, this is Ernie from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You, you talked about the numbers of incidents or encounters that police officers have with citizens daily or yearly, and you talked about how um, only about 50 of these result in these kind of, you know, murky deaths. Well, um, the murky but, deaths are 5 percent, clearly but, the ones that shouldn't happen like uh, Mr. Floyd's is 5%. Okay, the ones that shouldn't happen. Right. As the police chief for 20 and and a lot of, and I imagine that the the ones that happen happened at police departments in which they they would have otherwise have been considered to be following all the rules. So I'm wondering as the police chief for 25 years, what keeps you up at night and what worries you that this couldn't happen at your place? Well, I guess um because I know how we train our folks. I know how uh, we hold people accountable. I'm, I was amazed, frankly, when the, you know, the body cam issue, you know, two or three years ago, police are pushing back. We've had required recording of all police contacts for, I think, 15 years. We've had body cams for 11 years. Um, and the reason is I had an opportunity to uh, attend a Supreme Court uh, argument um, on uh, Scott v. Harris, the pursuit case out of Georgia. And what changed the mind of the justices, because Justice Bear out of, out of, or Breyer out of the box said to uh, uh, the fellow that was suing the police, his representative, that if it hadn't been for the video, um, I, would, I would be on your side. But the video tells a different story. And so I think what the video does, and there was a study done, looked at 3,000 um, cases where there was a complaint against the police officer and there was video. 96.2% of the time, the video acquitted the officer. The video does what I know, working with police officers for over 40 years, 95% of the time they get it right. They do an awful job of memorializing it. That video memorializes it. Hey, so, so, Ernie, the, the short answer, accountability. Okay. Accountability. But does that keep you up at night? I mean, when you go to bed, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you're worried about your officers, but mm -hmm. does this also concern you that something crazy could happen? I guess because of the nature of the partnerships that we've had for so long here that I'm confident that if I have officers, I'm going to hear from elected officials. I'm going to hear from community leaders. If I've got an officer that's causing an issue, that's going to allow me to focus and look at their record. We also have early intervention, so it looks at the number of use of force, looks at the number of complaints, looks at uh, the number of pursuits, look at workman comp. 
that looks at all those things that we know are key triggers to behavior that predictably could cause problems. So you have to have processes in place. This is not a profession where you can wing it. Chief, this is Jonathan Seri with Fox News Channel. You wrote this op-ed to answer questions that you were hearing from the community. How has your community responded to your answers? Um, I've gotten a lot of uh, a lot of feedback from the community, just thanking me for the article, um, thanking me, and uh, mostly thanking the officers that work here. Um, you know, during Ferguson and. Uh, uh, all those incidents that followed and the antagonism between the police and uh, many of its community members around the nation, we were covered up with, I had to modify our gratuity um, policy um, because we were giving so much food um, and you don't want to turn people away. Um, so, uh, you know, it was anything you can sit and eat at one setting is not gratuity. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is the South and this is how folks express, uh, you know, their appreciation. And uh, um, uh, we've, again, been very lucky, but as uh, I think uh, uh, somebody uh, alluded to in their question, you know, a bad encounter uh, because we got all those other issues that kind of simmer. You know, you've got poverty, you've got discrimination institutionalized across a lot of our organizations, um, you've got uh, an education system that's challenged. We've got a new superintendent who's working diligently to address that, address that. But uh, the focus of any police action, I think, oftentimes plays out um, with the additional frustration of what people that that have been, you know, historically discriminated against, um, and when they lash out, it's not just at the police; it's all the anger that is built up. Uh, because of what they've experienced in these other institutions. And the challenge for leadership is when you go in these institutions to recognize that, you know, the history doesn't start when you walk through the door. And an obligation of leadership is to see what's been done in the past, and if things haven't been done right, then you accept responsibility and you go about trying to correct them. So good morning, Chief. This is Ellen and, and Bill. Thank you for having me on the show. I, I don't even know how much Bill knows, but I started my career actually in the Army Reserves as a 46 Quebec. That's a print journalist. Uh, so from the very beginning of my career, I've had that perspective of both wanting to be a writer, reporter, an objective piece of what's going on, as well as the training of a, a soldier, law enforcement person. So I was listening to what you said about the character of the individual who chooses to go into law enforcement. And my question is, when you're trying to identify people to bring into the department, is the the amount of the budget, the what we can offer them for pay? Talk to me a little bit about how that makes a difference and how you can kind of choose the right people with the right character. Well, in, in that regard, our, our city has recognized that and uh, – they have been very supportive in terms of making our pay competitive. Should it could it be more? Yes, absolutely. You know, in the Wickersham Commission, which was the first law enforcement commission in the mid '30s, that was looking at the corruption in in policing and the political influence and everything that was going on during Prohibition. Um, they recommended <laughs> back in the mid '30s that uh, to be a police officer should require a four-year degree. We asked these folks to go out here 
and deal in dynamic situations um, with people that are uh, upset, that are mad, that are aggravated, and uh, we uh, we don't pay them uh, the kind of, uh, uh, I think, salary they deserve. Um, politicians always wax poetic when they're at a police officer's funeral um, about how much support, but when it comes to a commitment to training, when it comes to a commitment of compensation, um, oftentimes I think those words are hollow. Um, Georgia, unfortunately, now distinguishes itself as the lowest uh, required training to be a police officer in basic mandate. It used to be Louisiana. Well, they raised there, so now we're at the bottom. Interestingly enough, um, of the 30-some thousand police officers in this state, I think almost 50% have had CIT training, crisis intervention team training. And uh, if you're familiar with the Washington Post police uh, shooting site that they have where they started, I think, in 2015, and now they track all the shootings, um, they broke it down by state. And uh, we, in uh, 2015, were eighth in population. We were 42nd in fatal police shootings. Eighth in population. That means 41 other states had more fatal police shootings than Georgia. And the only thing I can attribute it to is the recognition by the profession, GBI, the Sheriff's Association, the Georgia Chiefs Association, that CIT was important. And we began training all our officers on CIT. Governor Deal recognized its importance and pushed for all officers to be trained. That's the kind of training that makes a difference. And, uh, uh, again, uh, selection, training, pivotal to having, uh, you know, uh, accountability. Chief, I want to jump in and I want to bring this home to uh, to what we've been seeing on the streets of uh, of Atlanta. And that also gives our reporters a chance to weigh in on what they've been seeing. But I want to do that by pointing out something you wrote back in 2017. And I thought it was fortuitous that this happened in 2017 uh, in uh, Police Magazine. You said public trust has been the cornerstone of contemporary policing since 1829. In the past, some law enforcement agencies have been indifferent to civil rights in their quest to solve crimes, while others permitted the physical assault or murder of persons of a different race or ethnicity. Like everyone in the field, I'm proud of my profession, but I recognize these events represent our darkest hour. With that as a framing, how have you seen the way the police, uh, Atlanta police themselves and some of the metro uh, police officers who've been brought into the city to help control the protests in the street. How do you believe uh, they're doing in the city right now in terms of dealing with protesters? And are the police here earning the trust of the people they're, uh, they're policing? Because obviously there's a lot of anger right now. Yeah, I mean, the the situation in Atlanta is challenging um, because you've got uh, embedded in uh, individuals that, uh, you know, merely want to exercise their First Amendment right, uh, you know, want, are, are, are grieved by what they saw, are frustrated by, uh, you know, a host of things, I believe, that have nothing to do with the police, but now are the focus of the police. And you have thousands of officers that have responded um, and stepped up, and I don't know how many, I, I don't know what the, their schedule is, but I can assure you conservatively, um, they're probably working uh, 12, 15 hours a day, on call the rest. And uh, 
uh, do officers uh, in, in certain instances um, uh, act inappropriately, use force inappropriately, uh, criminally? Uh, yes. But uh, looking at the whole and the, the coverage that I've seen, um, I think uh, over the, the last week, uh, uh, generally, I think they've done a, a, a great job under very difficult circumstances. Um, I think the incident that you know has been playing out with uh, the officer's uh, use of force uh, on those two uh, college students, um, I think that uh, you know that needs to be played out uh, administratively, um, ensuring that uh, they have due process so that uh, whatever discipline is taken um, sticks. Um, oftentimes, when you see a political uh, intervention in a uh, termination, um, a year later uh, in court, the employee prevails, and then you have to pay them back pay, which really ignites the community again. So being uh, intentional and following the process as it relates administratively is important. Um, the decision to prosecute, um, I don't know enough of the facts. I don't know how the case file was submitted. I don't know what investigation occurred uh, to make that decision. Um, but uh, I find that uh, my experience is that when we rush into these decisions, um, oftentimes what happens is as they play out in the required legal processes, the facts, uh, because they were hastily gathered, do not support the action. And then that undermines uh, the trust that people have in the process. And again, I, I make that statement oh, generally because I don't have all the facts. I've, I've got enough to say grace over well, down here. <laughs> uh, Chief, we promised that we would uh, – uh, we know you have a lot of responsibilities, and uh, we, we uh, asked you if you would uh, stay with us for the first uh, long segment of our show, and you've been very gracious to do that. I, I do want to give you an opportunity to get back to doing your work in the police force in LaGrange, but it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show today and to hear your uh, perspective on a lot of this. Uh, I'd love to keep you uh, in the loop and invite you back at some point down sure. the road. Happy to do it. I would like to share Thank one you. thing with you. Why don't we um, go ahead? You know, a year after Ferguson, uh, there was a Gallup poll that was published, uh, and I saw it on USA, so I came back to the office and I, I put it uh, put it in. But the, the banner headline, uh, public confidence in police at a 20-year low, I think it was 51%. Uh, the year before Ferguson, it was 61% or 62 So I pull up the poll, and sure enough, uh, we had dropped uh, 10 or 11 points. And we had gone, and they measured 16 institutions. We had gone from the third highest ranking institution to the fourth. We were at 51%. The, uh, President Obama was at 44%. The Supreme Court was at 32%. The media was at 19%. And Congress was at 9%. And as a student in my profession, I had to ask myself, how is it we could have the worst year uh, with Ferguson and still have from an institution standpoint, a relatively high confidence level. And the reason is that 75% of uh, the agencies in this country have 50 officers or less. 25% have uh, 25 officers or less. And 25%, another 25% have 10 officers or less. And so by its nature, 
police departments are community-oriented because everybody knows who their police officers are. And when people are asked, you know, what do you think of the police? They don't think of the riots. They don't think of Ferguson. They think, what was my last encounter with the police? How was I treated? And so the challenge for us is to remind our officers every time that they encounter someone, they're defining not only themselves and their profession, but also their agency. So thank you very much for allowing me the opportunity to, to visit with you this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank I appreciate it having you here. Let's do this. Let's let's take a break. And when we come back, uh, we've got a lot to talk about with our reporter roundtable. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, my partner, Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC, is with me today. So is Ernie Suggs, Jonathan Seri, uh, and Ellen Eldridge. Um, let me, if I can, Kevin, and you jump in at any moment you want to, let's, get, let's listen to what some of our uh, reporters today have seen out there on the streets. Uh, Ernie, you wrote a, a really powerful first-person account of, of after coming back from, I think, the Friday night, the first night of the protest uh, for the paper yesterday. You, you pointed out that in 2014, you were in Ferguson, where you covered the demonstrations, the protests there, where you saw tanks and tear gas. You said you had a gun pointed at you by a, a young person who was demonstrating, or maybe rioting is a better term, and you think, you said you never thought you'd witness this chaos in Atlanta, and then Friday happened. Talk a bit about that. Yeah, in 2014, I my first trip to Ferguson, um, well, my trip to Ferguson set off a chain of events in which I was going to a lot of different places uh, quickly, very quickly, because as you can remember, 2014, 2015, you had a police uh, shooting in Charleston. You had a police shooting in Baltimore. Or you had a police death in Baltimore. Um, you had them all over the country. And I was flying all over the country covering these events. And they were all tragic. They were all violent. They were all scary events. And Ferguson, obviously, being at the top of that list. So you can imagine just how terrifying Ferguson was, you know, having a gun pointed at me, having tear, tear gas shot at me. And, not, and I say me, but having, you know, being a reporter, you're in the middle of all of this, you know. You're, you're, you know, tear gas doesn't tear gas doesn't discriminate, nor do bullets and things of that nature. So being in Ferguson, I thought that was kind of like I would never see anything like this again. You know, it was almost as if I was in a war zone. So Friday night comes and I, you know, I go out to cover. I'm with Aresha Habersham and um, Alyssa Pointer, who's our photographer, Ben uh, Gray, who's a photographer, Eric Sturgis, Ben uh, Brash. So we're all out there. And it, it slowly deteriorates into this crazy scene. It starts off as a peaceful rally. Uh, um, and it, as the day goes on, as the night goes on, it gets more violent and more confrontational. And, you know, cars are burning, you know, tear gas is going, people are being, you know, sprayed with pepper spray in their face. So it became like this very, very horrific experience to kind of witness and to kind of witness 
downtown Atlanta just being indiscriminately destroyed. I, that's the kind of stuff that I just never thought I would see. I can understand protests and I can understand that kind of violence, but I cannot understand the indiscriminate destroying of downtown Atlanta. It was just beyond the pale of what I could ever have imagined. Jonathan, you saw it unfold on Friday night, too, I believe. Yeah, and I had a, a very gut emotional reaction, very similar to what I read in Ernie's piece in the AJC. Um, I've lived in Atlanta on and off since 1983 when I came here for college and covered protests as a student journalist and then later for WSB in the 90s and now with Fox News Channel. And having seen so many protests in the city, you get used to a certain playbook. Protesters show up, police tell them where they need to stay. Protesters violate the perimeter, push the envelope, block traffic. Police allow the protesters to blow off steam for 10 to 15 minutes. Then they tell them, all right, time to go back to the sidewalk. The protesters return to the sidewalk. Everything stays calm. That's what I was expecting with this protest. There's always been a certain restraint on both sides that I believe made Atlanta exceptional. Uh, sometimes friends that were new to town, they would ask me if it would be safe to bring a child to a protest that they felt strong about. And I'd say, yes, of course, this is Atlanta. After seeing what unfolded on Friday, I, I don't know that I could honestly give that same advice. And it breaks my heart. So, uh, you know, I know, Ellen, you were there, too. Um, uh, I, I think that one of the key figures in all of this is Erica Shields, the police chief uh, of Atlanta, who I, who I know and know rather well, because it was clear that first night that she had really sent a message that the protesters were going to be, you know, let's use the word tolerated. I, I'm not sure that's the best word. And that police should absolutely seek to deescalate. And then this comes on top of other decisions she's made about not pursuing, you know, uh, uh, people or potential criminals uh, in car chases. And then all of a sudden the criticism came that, that the police had just waited too long to act with force. I mean, was that your perception being there? And, and what went on? I mean, we could see on live TV that officers were literally being taunted at times. You're addressing me, Kevin. I actually, no, yeah, I, I actually covered it remotely. We had two staff people to cover the protests Friday. I started early in the day by interviewing a young woman, a 19-year-old woman, who organized one of the peaceful protests. And uh, I, I like to think of myself sort of like Batman, watching all of the different social media and the GDOT cameras and the live TV pictures to get that that overview perspective. So I wasn't on the ground, but I watched it. And I watched right around, right around 8 o'clock, I guess, is when we started seeing scenes of people really getting more aggravated and irritated and tussling over bikes with police officers. And, and again, like Ernie said in his column, I didn't think that Atlanta would deteriorate the way other cities had. I was really surprised. I've covered protests. I actually came from the AJC. I was a breaking news reporter there with Rice and Ben and, and all of them. And um, I've seen it firsthand. I didn't expect it until I started seeing people smashing car windows, cop car windows with skateboards, and then seeing that car on fire, I, I truly was surprised, which I didn't think that I would be surprised. If I can, if I can so, answer, um, Kevin. I want to, sure, go ahead. Yeah, 
uh, if I can answer Kevin's questions about the uh, police being antagonized, I think that's correct because, you know, Jonathan and Ellen talked about how none of us expected, none of us on the ground expected this to go the way it is because of Atlanta's history, Atlanta, the Atlanta way, as, I written, as we've all written about and talked about. So we know no one expected this, but there was a, a contingency of people who were deliberately baiting the police officers, uh, Kevin, as you talk about, they were deliberately baiting the police officers while there was a larger group of peaceful protesters in Centennial Park having speeches and praying and things of that nature, whereas on, on the CNN side of the park, you have people in the faces of the police officers. So I'm not sure if the police waited too long to kind of respond, but I think it got to a point where the crowd of antagonists were just getting so violent, so forceful, throwing rocks at CNN's building, throwing rocks, throwing bottles at the police officers, that at some point it was going to have to explode, and it exploded. I, I want to weigh in, and, and Jonathan, you're welcome to pick up on this. Uh, we have said on this show all week that we don't want to create a false equivalency uh, that w- by which we've said um, the death of George Floyd uh, the death of Breonna Taylor, the death of Ahmaud Arbery, not by actual law enforcement, by people who styled themselves as white uh, vigilante law enforcement types. Um, those things are terrible tragedies. And we don't want to create the false equivalency here that it's counterbalanced by the fact that some demonstrators got out of hand when in fact, most of the protesters here and around the country have been peaceful and have been there for a very specific purpose. So I just want to make sure we say that as we talk about uh, what happened uh, in Atlanta over the, the, the nights, up until the last couple of nights. And Jonathan, to make that point, uh, Ernie saw a lot of people who were there with very good intentions, and I assume you did too. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to put that in perspective, especially when the rallies first start out in the mid-afternoon, um, very mainstream attendees. I run into a lot of clergy that I know from my church, um, people who you know don't have a violent bone in their body uh, wanting to make a point, um, people bringing their kids, even though I no longer can um, recommend you bring your kids, people bringing small children, um, very family-oriented. And then as you get closer and closer to curfew, that's when you start seeing the instigators arriving. And they're still not the majority, but there are just enough of them to throw rocks or bottles to antagonize the police. And then there comes the tear gas and the the mood of these rallies changes. And also um, what we need to put in perspective is Major cities are dominating the national news coverage of these rallies, but there are also rallies, largely peaceful, taking place in small towns. I was driving through Braselton earlier this week and saw a, a rally in front of a, a government building, peaceful. There was a rally, a peaceful rally that took place in Decatur um, just yesterday. And we don't hear about those, uh, at least in the national news, because it's these major cities that are dominating the coverage. Yeah. And that's something else that I, I'm really proud of the team here at GPB, where we truly are statewide and we've covered some of those other protests we covered in Savannah. Emily Jones went out there and uh, talked about the mayor putting a curfew in, into place and just watching all of this unfold. And, and while Savannah and Macon and, and outside the perimeter, all of the coverage we did, it has largely been incredibly peaceful. 
um, and people are trying to make the point and, and be out there. And, and most people are seeming to go home before nine o'clock. And that's when we're seeing things really, really turn. I'd like to ask Ernie about this question of, uh, or, and, and let all of you weigh in about this question of outsiders. As you know, whenever these things happen, uh, it really almost through a modern American history, uh, officials want to say, oh, outside agitators, um, often even during the civil rights movement, you know, things were portrayed that way. We have a story today that we're reporting that of the 425 people arrested between Friday and Monday uh, by Atlanta police, 85% of them live in the state. So, Ernie, how would you address that outside agitator thing? I mean, you've talked a little bit about the scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think you make we've made a strong case here. Most people are peaceful protesters. How? Who are these people who who you know who kind of incite the violence? I think you got to define what an outside agitator is. I think in the '60s and '50s and '60s and during the civil rights, an outside agitator was a white northerner who's coming down south to kind of rile up black people. But I think even though a majority of these people who've been arrested are Georgians, I think you also got to look at what an outside agitator is and what the purpose of this is. I was shocked and surprised that early on, and Jonathan may have been out there in front of CNN as well, a lot of the early skirmishes and arrests were young white men who were being dragged off by police officers. And I was like, wow, what are they doing? When when the police cars were being vandalized in front of CNN, young white men were on top of those cars, vandalizing those cars. The young white man set that car on fire. I don't know who set the cars on fire in front of the um, Hall of Fame, but I do think that even though a lot of these people are Georgians, you got to understand and you got to try to figure out what their purpose is. You know, Chuck D, uh, one of my favorite philosophers and rappers, has a quote that says, every brother ain't a brother. And that means that every black person is not on your side. And I think if you expand that phrase and say every Georgian isn't a Georgian, just because you're from Georgia doesn't mean that you have the best interest at heart when it comes to these protests. So you got to kind of look at what who these people are who were coming, why they were coming, what groups they were representing, which I don't know if we ever figured that out. But, you know, there were a lot of people out there who did not have the best interest at heart of the city of Atlanta and the protesters. I got I- I got to get to a break. Uh, But as we go to a break, I want to make a couple of quick points. One is that Ipsos the other day, polling with writers, uh, determined that 63 to 64 percent of the American people support the demonstrations that have been going on in cities around the country. That is a remarkable sea change from the way Americans felt in watching earlier demonstrations, protests, even when they became violent, as some of the protests uh, have done in the last uh, a week or so. And then when we come back, I want to talk to Ernie a little bit more about the so-called Atlanta way. This is Political Rewind. So, uh, Kevin Riley, all three of our reporters, our journalists on this show, have uh, said that they were surprised to see the demonstrations turn violent because this is, after all, Atlanta. And Ernie Suggs, Kevin, even wrote a piece about the so-called Atlanta way we get things done peacefully. Uh, We want to make sure business survives and so black and white business leaders come together and work on peaceful solutions to problems, all that sort of thing. But, Kevin... There's a hard fact 
that I think needs to be discussed as part of what angers the people who have been demonstrating this week. Atlanta has one of the worst gaps between the haves and have-nots of any city in the country, regardless of the fact that it's African-American leaders who have been in control of the agenda here for so long. Yeah, I think you're right, and certainly that quotation from Martin Luther King has reemerged throughout this, the riots. I think Bernice King used it first in that press conference. Right, Ernie? I mean, she said, uh, riots are the language of the unheard. Unheard, And, and yeah. I think that's what we're seeing. Ernie? What's your yeah. take, Ernie? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. You know, we have this concept that Atlanta is black mecca and that African-Americans can come here and succeed, and they do. I, you know, I came here in 1997 with a specific purpose and a specific reason, because Atlanta was Atlanta, and this was this emerging black mecca. You have all these black colleges. You have all, you know, all these black mayors who've been here. Um, but there is a discrepancy here. You know, there's parts of town that you don't want to go to. There are parts of town, parts of this town that are struggling, and people don't necessarily know or understand that when they talk about Atlanta. You, when you talk about the Atlanta way, you talk about how businesses got together to kind of increase harmony and try to make harmony and how Atlanta has always been considered that place. But when you really dig down deep, and Atlanta's a great city. I love it, uh, you know. But there are, you know, ways in which it can be better. There are ways in which African-Americans and minorities can be served better. And I think that this is probably going probably gonna to open up some doors to, in which we can lead through to that. Yeah, and uh, just piggybacking on what Ernie was saying, I, I really wonder what's going to come out of this. My concern was that when people saw the violence in other parts of the, the country or around the country, uh, that the message would be lost. This there's some seems to be something different about what's going on now that the American people are able to separate the violence from the peaceful protesters trying to get the message across, that message is not going away. And maybe I'm naive, but I just, it seems like something more is going to come out of this than previous rallies. And, you know, if, if I if I may just jump in, I wanted to address something that Kevin had said earlier, and, and certainly my reporters and, and I are going through the data as well about outside people being arrested. And I want to make the point that let's not forget we're also in a pandemic, and many, many people across the country are having to return to their parents' home or, you know, something along those lines. So as we go through the data as reporters, I'm keeping an eye out to see who are these people? Just because they come from another state, does that necessarily mean that they came here with the purpose of inciting a riot uh, or going against the Atlanta way? Because I, I, it's just on my mind. I wanted to make that point. Um, Kevin, before we run out of completely out of time for the show, I do want to circle back to uh, the conversation that we had with Louis Deckmar, the police chief uh, from LaGrange uh, at the beginning of the, of the show. Um, chief Deckmar talked about, it's interesting, Kevin, that in the uh, op-ed piece he wrote for you, in other writings I've read of his, he's, he talks very clearly about a culture in which uh, white, largely white officers do not show humanity toward uh, minorities, towards African Americans and others. And, 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 but he, at the same time, obviously on our show, uh, was saying that's a very, very tiny minority of all police. But, but the issue, Kevin, is that there are many, many 
minority Americans out there, certainly in Georgia, who have seen abusive behavior or what they perceive to be abusive behavior by police that's made them truly afraid and suspicious that police don't have their best interests at heart. And I think even the chief would acknowledge that can be a terrible problem, Kevin. Well, yeah, and I think one of the things that uh, Chief Deckmar pointed out when he went through just the, you know, the huge numbers and statistics about police interactions, I mean, think about it for a second. Even during this period of all these protests and all that's gone on, I mean, there are literally hundreds of police officers out there. And um, it, just the math would tell you that virtually every single one of them has not reacted in an inappropriate way or in a violent way to protesters or even looters, for that matter. And it only takes one incident or one person to do that to create, you know, the the video to create the national outcry. And think about it. I mean, if you've got one bad cop on a police force of uh, a couple hundred and that cop has, you know, 25 interactions a day, that's a really tough that's a really tough situation. So um, the numbers are not big, but man, the incidents are high profile. Yeah, um, I'm interested in the fact, uh, Jonathan, let me ask, say this and then you can uh, respond. I'm interested in the fact about the chant that's gone up in the last couple of nights. I've heard it here in Atlanta that it's going on in Atlanta. It's been reported upon. Um, uh, there ain't no riot here. Why are you in riot gear? I think that's fascinating to hear that coming from the crowd out there, Jonathan. <laughs> and, uh, and, and just uh, answering what, what Kevin Riley was uh, saying, it, it really is. It really just takes a, a few, a handful of troublemakers, whether it's rogue cops or bad protesters, <laughs> to create this scene. The 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 tear gas came after a few, a handful of protesters were throwing rocks or water bottles. But I have not in Atlanta, but uh, another city, Baton Rouge, I saw a police officer severely injured by a water bottle. The officer suffered a neck injury. So it is serious when you start throwing water bottles. But even if only one, two or three people are throwing them, that is enough to instigate the tear gas and create these images that we're seeing all around the nation. And when Kevin talks uh, about... We're almost out of time. Okay. Go ahead, Ernie. Yeah, I'll, I'll be very quick. When Kevin talks about minority interaction with police officers, it only takes one instance. It only takes one time that you're stopped for, for no reason. It takes one time for a police officer to, to, to approach you and say you look suspicious when you're walking through your neighborhood. And so all the all the positive interactions in which you can have with a police officer, it only takes one to change your whole perception of it. I, I uh, thank you all. We're completely out of time. Ernie Suggs, a pleasure to have you on the show. You as well, Jonathan Seri, and my colleague, Ellen Eldridge. Thank you for uh, joining us. Kevin Riley, another Thursday, uh, having a fascinating conversation with you as my partner on the show. Uh, We're back again for another Political Rewind tomorrow. We'll talk tomorrow largely about what's coming up in the primary uh, next Tuesday. In the meantime, uh, take care and please stay healthy.